This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament book of 1 Peter in the third chapter. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm excited we're going to be in 1 Peter 3. We're going to look at a great, great text of Scripture that is rich as far as its teaching about God and Christ, but it's also very, very important for us in our Christian lives. It's one of those passages that's going to help you right now if you're suffering and living with conflict because you're a Christian, um, or it's going to help you later when you're suffering and dealing with conflict because you're a Christian. So it's one of those texts that's designed to equip, it's designed to help, it's designed to, to train us and to help us. It's a critical kind of passage that we have in our, our database, in our, in our bag, if you will, so we're ready for what life brings us as Christians. Uh, as a general rule in life, uh, life is kind of like the Proverbs. Uh, if you do the right thing, it'll go well for you. Uh, Proverbs isn't filled with promises, generally speaking. It's filled with Proverbs. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, that will happen. Um, and generally speaking, in life, if you do what's right, your life will be better. Um, if you do the right thing, if you speak the truth, it'll be better. If you do what's moral, it'll be better. If you stand up for what's right, it'll be better. Uh, that's just kind of a truism, pro- a proverb for life. That's what I would teach my kids. Uh, it's what Peter actually teaches Christians. If you act Christianly, if you seek to do what's right and, and behave yourself, if you will, uh, life is going to go your way. It's going to be positive, generally speaking. But Peter is smart enough to know, uh, and as Jesus would have taught, this is not the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 promises us, um, where there are no more tears. Uh, we still live in a broken, fallen world, in a world that still has hostility against Christ. You see where I'm going? Therefore, there is sometimes hostility against Christians. And so First Peter is going to help us to see straight, to keep perspective, to know how to deal with the conflict that sometimes comes even when we do the right thing, even when we're standing for the truth, which seems strange, but it does happen. Uh, Our second lady, um, Karen Pence, you may have heard in the news, recently found this out as she was seeking to act Christianly, uh, and she wanted to go back to teaching, as I recall it, at a Christian school, uh, and she was treated by left-wing media and others as if she were the worst bigot on planet Earth, and she was the most evil person on planet Earth, because after all, she was going to teach at a school that, that honored and upheld biblical morality and ethics. And what a bad person uh, she is. Even what a bad Christian she is. Now, I don't know the second lady, uh, but I do know her pastor. And I know he's not a crazy, wild-eyed, right-wing, fighting fundamentalist. Um, They're trying to say, this is what the Bible says about human sexuality. This is what's right. This is what's sinful. Everybody needs a Savior. Very simple and straightforward. And boy, did she take it on the chin for that. Coming to a theater near you, by the way. We might not live in her limelight, but if you, in our day at least, affirm basic Bible truths about truth and morality, you're going to feel it. Even if you're nice. You're trying to do what's right in honoring God, and there will be consequences for that sometimes. Sometimes it will go well for you. 
Other times it won't. First Peter's helping us live and navigate in a world that's not the New Jerusalem, even though we're citizens of the New Jerusalem. So if you haven't found First Peter 3 yet, you have a problem. Um, because I've given you lots of time. We're going to look at verses 13 to 22. This will be part one. I'm calling it suffering with Jesus for good. Suffering with Jesus for good. Now, by way of review, in chapter 2, he, um, having explained the gospel and what it means to be forgiven and to be in Christ, he calls us to live a certain way. In verse 11 of chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, even though this isn't your homeland, Uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's talking about sinful actions, even though we might want to do them, don't do them, which wage war against your soul. And then look at chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct, your, your life, your behavior, your ethics, conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He means um. He's using that as the, the, the ungodly, the non-Christians. As you live among them and engage with them and work with them and love them, uh, keep your conduct honorable. Do what's right. Do what's proper. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, see, that might happen, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's an evangelistic kind of living. You're hoping that your life, even if they're persecuting you, you're hoping that your life might be used of God uh, as they would hear the gospel as well. And, and perhaps on the day of visitation, when Christ visits us, second coming judgment, they won't be his enemies. They will become his brothers and sisters by faith. Okay, so that's what's happening. That's kind of the setting. That's the context. That's what we want. Okay? Now, let's dive into being equipped in chapter 3, verse 13. I can hardly wait. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's our first question. Rhetorical question. Anticipating a a response. Who's going to harm you if you do what's good? It's sort of like a proverb. General principle, if you do what's good, it's going to be good in your life. Do what's true, do what's honorable, do what's honest, do what would please God. It's going to go, it's going to go good for you, proverbially speaking. But then he gives a promise after that to help us see it in the context. I know he's speaking in that way because of the next verse. Look there, verse 14. But, it's always the but, isn't it? I like the but God, but that's another sermon. But... Even if you, Mr. or Mrs. Christian, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Okay? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, it's going to work out okay. You'll be blessed. We need to pause for a moment and and just first observe. That's a promise. That's not just a proverbial principle. That's a promise. It will work out best for you you do what's right, at least before God, you'll be blessed. But let's, let's pause for a moment and really kind of think about this, about how wrong that statement is on one level. Why would I say that? Look there again in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Why would I say that's wrong on a certain level? Suffer for righteousness sake. That's wrong. No one should suffer for righteousness. No one should suffer for for righteousness. Right? In a spiritually sane world, in the New Jerusalem, 
if everything is perfect, perfect and right, a non-fallen world, you'd never, ever, ever suffer for righteousness. Because suffering, and, and suffering comes because of the fall and because of the consequences of sin. Suffer for righteousness? That shouldn't happen. By the way, righteous, right, right, if, if it helps you, just think of the word right, for starters. Oh, if you do what's right, you don't suffer. Uh, but it's a legal word, so, so it has to do with, with what's just, what's equitable, what's fair, what's good. It's a legal word. Righteous means adherence to law. If you, if you obey the law, you shouldn't suffer. It doesn't make sense to suffer if you obey God's law. The wages of sin is death and suffering comes with it. That's the opposite. We were saying in our thinking as Christians, if we do what's right in the eyes of God, we're not going to suffer. But see, we live in a broken world and a world that crucified Christ. Okay? So now we have to think in terms of, oh, it's problematic, but it's not a new concept because Christ suffered. As a matter of fact, Oh, let, let, let's pause for a second. Getting ahead of myself. Just a little too enthusiastic today. Um, suffering for righteousness. How might you suffer for righteousness as a Christian? And Peter did. It cost Peter his life. So how might you or how might this look in my life? I'm going to do what's right. And unbelievers, that's our context, are going to inflict suffering in, toward me. Well, I might say what's true and suffer as a result. You might do what's right and suffer as a result. It might have to do with your ethics. It might have to do with your morality. It might have to do with your truthfulness. It might have to do with what you say is true about Jesus. It might have to do with your wanting to obey Jesus, what He says. And it may mean for you suffering, hostility, because of what you say to be true and not true. This is a very real real reality to be redundant. And it might not be happening in your life right now. It might be happening in your life right now. But Jesus did say, in this world you will have trouble. If they persecuted me, Jesus said they'll persecute you. So maybe it's not happening right now. Maybe you're living in that nice proverbial land. But if you are now, I, I want you to be equipped and, and to be more clear-headed about this so you can have perspective. And if you're not right now, I still want you to be able to be equipped with this so you can have perspective. When you suffer for doing what is right, saying what is right, believing what is right, you just have to remember, he says, you, you, you will be blessed. God's watching. You with me? Now, it's not just positive self-talk, you know. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be blessed. If I just say it enough times, it doesn't make any sense to me. But if I just say it enough times, you know, it's, it's true. No, he's not going there. In fact, right now what I want you to see is the parallel that this is suffering with Jesus. This is identity with Jesus. That's where the blessing comes from. So if you have a printed Bible, you can put your finger on our verse, and then verse 18, if you're using a screen, you probably don't want to do that because it's going to take you to, I don't know, Siri or something. Okay, so, but what I, what I have here is verse 14, 
with underlining and highlighting, and then verse 18 with underlining and highlighting, because Peter wants us to see the parallel between us and Jesus. So 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so suffer for righteousness' sake, then drop down to verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See the parallel? It's an important parallel. It's a grand parallel. So even if you, as someone who's trusting in Jesus, you're united to Christ by faith, if you should suffer, you should remember that there's blessing. And I'm telling you right now where the blessing is. Remember, you're united to Christ, and He suffered, and He is the righteous. And you're identified with Him by faith. You're identified with the righteous. Therefore, you want to do what's right or righteous. That's being a Christian, wanting to live the Christian life. There's blessing in the fact that you're with Him. You're on the right side of history. I don't care what the pundits tell you. Or whoever. You're on the right side of history. You're with the righteous. I'm with him, ma'am. I'm with him, sir. The righteous suffered for being himself inherently righteous. We are not inherently righteous. He suffered for us as sinners, but we are united to him by faith, and there is blessing in that. You see? We've got to keep sane in our thinking, spiritually sane. We're with Him. I'm intimidated by all of these other people. I, I, some of these people who I love are inflicting pain in my life because of my devotion to Him or commitment to Him. But I have to remember my ultimate allegiance, my ultimate alliance, my ultimate devotion is to the ultimate one, the righteous. I know this is super simple. But I can't tell you how long it took me to even figure out that I should put my finger on this verse and this verse and to see the similarity. But that's why you pay me to to be locked up in my office. To go, aha! That'll preach. (laughs) Identity with Him. See, I want to be intimidated by Lady Gaga, America's new Christian theologian, who tells Mrs. Pence, that her Christianity is a perverse version of Christianity. Oh, thank you, Lady Gaga. I'm so thankful for your insights. I want to be intimidated by celebrity. I want to be intimidated by people who are powerful. I want to be intimidated by all of these other people, whether they're, they're singers, celebrities, or whoever they are, bosses. And the reality is, Christ the righteous suffered. I'm seeking, because I'm joined to Him by faith, to believe, do, promote, stand for what is right. Shouldn't totally surprise me if there's some suffering along the way. But I'm blessed because I'm, I'm with Him. Okay? I'm with Him. Now, to get into the weeds a little bit more, I think it might even get better when we think in terms of just how awesome it is to be associated with Christ the righteous, we're blessed because of the association. But maybe I won't take the time to go there, but join me, come come with me into the weeds. Uh, (laughs) I can't help but think about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about blessed is the one who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. They don't do the wrong things. They don't do the unrighteous things. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Law, righteous word. The blessed one is the one who doesn't do what's unrighteous. 
The blessed one is the one who does what's righteous. Okay? Follow me a little bit further. I know there are crickets and scary things in the weeds. No snakes, I promise. It's too cold. We go into the weeds a little further and we go, oh, okay, I get it. That's true in principle. There's only one who is the righteous. The ultimate blessed one is who? It is Christ, the righteous. He's the ultimate blessed one. And if I am united to Him by faith, regardless of what Lady Gaga says or whoever else says whatever they want to say or whatever happens to me, Peter's going to lose his life over it. Regardless, no matter what, I'm united to the blessed one who is the righteous and so therefore I know God accepts me. Talk to the hand. This is perspective. We've got to get perspective. We've got to keep perspective. We're talking about being in Christ, the righteous. So we're going to stand for what's right. We're going to do what's right. We're going to do our best. Remember earlier in First Peter, he's tried to help us to understand how to live the Christian life in the home, how to live the Christian life in a society, how to live the Christian life amongst unbelieving governing authorities. He wants us to do a good job. We're not trying to make this heaven. We're not trying to, trying to make this the new Jerusalem. God's got that handled. This is not that. But as we're trying to do what's right, live reasonable lives, there will be at times the pushback. Remember, remember, remember. Ultimately, you'll be blessed because you're connected to the one who earned the blessing. Right? This is so awesome. Let's move on. I don't want to move on. In my notes, it says stress and stress some more. So maybe it's a five-part sermon. We won't do that. Okay, verse 14 goes on to say, Have no fear of them. The them would be the who, the ones who inflict the suffering. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. It's a word that literally could be translated shaken. It's internally being shook. And I'll confess to you that happened. That that's me, right? I'm that guy. I'm the guy who knows I'm not supposed to be internally shaken, and I'm internally shaken, owning it when I I don't need to. I need to be reminded. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Easier said than done. But in your hearts, that's the true you on a spiritual level. And it's your very heart of hearts internally, the genuine Pat or the genuine you in your hearts by way of contrast. Here's how you're going to deal with the troubling and the fear. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Honor Christ, honor Christ the Lord, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Notice the striking contrast. The them who inflict the suffering, by way of contrast, Christ the Lord who is holy. So I've I've got to have perspective. I want to cave to the them to get them off my back and to get my job back or whatever it might be. The them, you know, remember, honor Christ. Give your ultimate devotion. There is honor for every. We should honor everyone, lowercase h, but ultimately when it comes to righteousness, what's right, we have to honor Christ above all others. Honor Christ the Lord. Honor Christ the Lord 
as holy. Perspective, 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 perspective. It's, it's like I, I need to be reminded who Jesus is, who Jesus is, who Jesus is, and that will eclipse all of the other threats or all the threats. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's the, 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 the intended contrast. He's in a different category altogether. I like to say he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy, holy, H-O-L-Y. We sang about him this morning. Remember, and I do this all the time, I know, but for new folks, holy means different. A category all his own, distinct. In the Old Testament temple, they had certain instruments that were like all the other instruments you would use to sacrifice animals, or excuse me, to butcher animals. But they had holy butchering things because they're different. They're set apart for a unique thing. Jesus is Christ the Lord, Messiah, anointed, delivering Savior, Christ the Lord. He's over all. He has supreme authority. He's the grand one. He has all power. He's Christ the Lord who is, if, as if we needed to hear more, who is, he didn't even need to say it, but he's going to go ahead and say, who's holy? Totally different. Pat, don't cave to the pressure to compromise because you belong to Christ the Lord who is holy. You've got to remember that and I've got to remember that. And remember, in our context, not because we so hate people, not because we're so happy to be right and we just can't wait for God to smoke them. I love imprecatory psalms. Kill my enemies, Lord. Oh, remember earlier, so that on the day of visitation, they might actually be with us and not against us. This is not easy, right? It's not easy to be a sojourner. It's not easy to be a stranger and an alien, but it's the the time in which we live. It's really important that we try to keep this straight in our minds and, and have perspective on these things. It's only reasonable that we would honor Christ and not everyone else who puts the pressure on us to dishonor Him. He's above all others. Now, if this isn't striking enough, um, we're going to go to the weeds again. Okay, we're going to cross. That's just I'm just going to cross reference to, to to Isaiah chapter eight. So you can turn there if you'd like to. We're going to read a handful of verses. You don't have to, but in Isaiah eight, I think Peter has Isaiah eight in mind. I know that he had Isaiah eight in mind in chapter 2, because he talks about Christ being the the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, the very one who is key, the very one who is central, the very one who is the center, is the very one who they reject, prophesied in Isaiah 8. So I know it has been on Peter's mind, and I'm in really good company with Bible scholars to think it's probably on his mind now, and it's worth it, okay? It's, It's worth seeing this. Because in our English translation, uh, or even the Greek New Testament, when we see Christ the Lord as holy, I mean, that, that right there is, that, that, that's extraordinary, that's matchless, that's unrivaled. But if we dig a little bit, we might even see that it's maybe better than we even thought. Isaiah chapter 8, verse, uh, I'm not, well, hold on. Isaiah 8, what he's, he's, he's helping 
a believer understand that you, you shouldn't be intimidated and fearful by the unbelievers who are putting the pressure on you, even if you're exiled. Remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. He's doing a similar kind of thing that Peter's doing with Christians in the New Testament. So how about this? Verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, and His strong hand upon me, He's the powerful one, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Don't, don't walk in the way of the unbeliever. Don't succumb to the pressures that they're inflicting upon you. Saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. They've got things upside down. They're wrong in their understanding of things. Then how about verse 13? Here we, here we go. But the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord literally of armies, the Lord who's powerful beyond them even, the Lord of hosts, here we go, Him you shall honor as holy. Probably using the same verbiage. That's where Peter's getting it. Him, honor the Lord, honor Him as holy. Not, not their fake gods, not their, maybe their self-gods. Honor the Lord who is in fact holy, the one who is almighty and powerful. And he uses the word Yahweh, translated Lord. Yahweh, the, the one true, living, self-existent, eternal, unique, unrivaled, unmade God. Yahweh, He's holy. Everything else is chumptum, okay? In comparison. If that's what Peter has in mind, likely so, because of what he goes on to say about the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. When he says, Christian, honor Christ the one who is Yahweh. The one true, eternal, self-existent, non-created God, Yahweh Himself. Honor Him. Honor Him. It's awesome. It's awesome. So when you have to decide about right and wrong, truth, or consequences. My prayer for you is that you would be spiritually sane. Honor Christ who is none other than Yahweh. Holy, unique. You'll be blessed. Because He ultimately has the power anyway. Super helpful. Uniquely helpful. It says a lot about Jesus and it helps us to see it's a no-brainer. But, but we get cloudy and we get foggy and our, our vision gets all messed up spiritually and we don't do the right thing. We don't say the right thing. So this is a, a Christian, the Apostle Peter, he's the Apostle of Jesus, speaking with his authority, helping, encouraging, guiding, shepherding us. Remember Jesus. Do what's right, even if it means suffering. How many minutes have we gone? I don't know. I preached like the shortest sermon I've ever preached at Omaha Bible Church a few weeks ago, and I thought I was going to get fired. You know, people will forgive. I tell, I tell preaching students, people will forgive 
Short bad sermons, but not long bad sermons. Anyway, we'll go a little further, but I kind of don't want to because I want it to, to, to settle in our minds. Christ the Lord who is holy. Okay, let's honor Him. I don't need to be afraid of you name them. Which is not easy because it might mean your house. It might mean your lifestyle. It might mean your very closest relationships. It might not. But it might. And it has for some. Remember Christ the Lord who is holy. Believing, doing, saying the right thing about whatever is actually worth it. It's actually worth it. Okay, we're going to go a little bit further and then rudely interrupt. Verse 15, we can't leave half a verse just standing there, right? It's just like staring at me. Verse 15, we're going to go on to the classic, classic Christian apologetics text. Um, Verse 15 says, Always, so as we're honoring Christ the Lord as holy, always, this complements that, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So as I'm seeking amidst the suffering to honor Christ, because no one rivals Him, and if I could just remember that, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay even if I'm not okay. Especially because He's going to go on to talk about resurrection. So they could kill you, but it's okay. Christ the Lord who is holy, and He's the resurrected one, and He promises you resurrection. So He's going to get to that. We're, we're artificially not getting there yet, sorry. But as you're doing that, as you're seeking to honor Him, you should all also be prepared to say something. As people are attacking you, why, why do you believe these stupid idiotic things? Why do you say these stupid idiotic things? What is your problem? Do you just like pain? All you would have to do is renounce this and you would get the promotion, you idiot. Right? Or, or it doesn't seem reasonable to the unbeliever. You're foregoing good because of your convictions? Are you crazy? As that's happening, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. You're going you're gonna to give an explanation. You're going to give a reasonable explanation. You're going to give a defense for why it is you're devoted, come heaven or high water, to this Jesus. Right? You see, you see what he's doing? Always being prepared. Don't take this out of context. It's in a context. We've been seeing the context. As the other is happening, as you're suffering, always being prepared. You're ready. You stand ready. This means you've been equipped. This means you, you know things and stuff. Always being prepared to make a defense. That's our word where we get apologetics. Apologia. Uh, it doesn't mean apologize. It means defense. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone 
who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And the hope that is in you is your... Well, I'll get to it. (laughs) First of all, let's remember, he's not saying apologizing. That's not what apologetics is. I know that that's something most of you know, but apologia, defense. That's the Greek word. To make a defense, an apologetic. Also notice, number two on my list, this is not for a special class of Christian. All apologetics professors need to be prepared to defend the faith. Mm -mm. I like apologetics people. I like those who give their whole life and focus in ministry to apologetics if they're good and biblical. I'm thankful for them. But this is not their verse. Well, it is their verse, but it's your verse too. You see? He's writing to Christians who haven't been to seminary, who are suffering. And he's saying, Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your wonderful kids, you should always be prepared to make a defense. You, Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your children, if they're Christians, right? You see see what I'm doing? Don't leave this to James White, bless his soul and ministry. He would tell you the same thing. You need to be prepared amidst the suffering when somebody thinks you've lost your mind to give an explanation. Also, third on my list, for anyone who asks, super powerful people who know a lot and have a lot of authority and people who don't know much and everybody in between, to anyone who asks, what if it's Richard Dawkins uh, who, you know, read two verses out of a Gideon's Bible and now he's an expert on Christianity or something stupid. He knows a lot about science. He doesn't know anything about Christianity. Yeah, even to Richard Dawkins. Prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks. Okay, you with me so far? And by the way, I'm going to make this super easy for you. Next on my list is to note that it's objective, a defense. It's a legal term, a legal defense. It's reasonable. That's why he says, for a reason for the hope that is in you. We're talking about facts and history, objective. Here's a a pro tip. Therefore, you don't start with, I feel it's true. It's objective. You're amidst the conflict and the suffering. You're prepared as a Christian. All Christians should be. We'll talk about it next week because the time is against me. But you're you're ready. Doesn't matter if they're a little kid. Doesn't matter if they're PhD. You're prepared to give a reasonable, factual, historic defense explanation for why you're a Christian. That's what it is. That's what it is. But I haven't read all those books. Well, if you know about Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection and that He did what He did 
for sinners so that they could have eternal life. If you know those things, and we're going to talk about them next week, you are prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. I mean, just shorthand, if you know something about the historic empty tomb, you are prepared to talk objectively about history to someone regarding why you are a Christian. And we're going to see it in the text. We're going to see it in the text. I can't wait. I can't wait. But I have to wait. (laughs) We're going to get better equipped to be faithful Christians. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do next week by God's grace, through His Word, and by the power of the Spirit. But right now we need to pray. Okay, Father, thank You so much for this morning. Thank You for the delight that is in hearing from Your Word. Thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. Thank you for the like-minded fellowship that we share in Christ as we gather here at Omaha Bible Church. We pray for Christian brothers and sisters around the world that you would be encouraging them with the truth regarding Christ, the hope of eternal life, what it means to be united to him by faith, that you would help them to be brave where they need to be brave and bold where they need to be bold also walking in humility as we will see in our text next week. What an honor and delight it is to know you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.